This morning, we'll be looking at uh, Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. So if you have a Bible with you, would you turn there with me? If you need a Bible, there are some blue ones in the seat back in front of you, and you'll find Mark chapter 7 on page 491 of that Bible. <clears throat> in this passage we'll be looking at, Mark returns once again to the escalating conflict between the scribes and Pharisees and Jesus uh, that we saw earlier in chapter 2 and 3. So uh, let's read God's word together. Uh, Mark 7, 1 through 23. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor me, honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you have, would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. From, with, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. This is God's word. Father, we ask that you give us understanding as we read your word today. We know 
that you, Holy Spirit, are the one that guides us into all truth. So we ask that you would illuminate your word for us now. May we hear, understand, and respond as you intend this morning. Amen. You've probably seen something like this happen many times. Uh, a famous athlete or a, an actor or a celebrity or even a church leader gets caught doing something or saying something that's clearly sinful. A person that you looked at as kind of a pretty good guy suddenly looks really, really bad. And the situation's changed, the names are different, but often the response is very similar. That's not who I really am. That's not me. Why do people say things like that? Do they, do they believe that? I would say that they do. Of course, their claims are not true. Their behavior, their words have exposed who they actually are. But most of the time, people seem blind to this fact, and adamantly so. This phenomenon is not isolated to celebrities. All people, all of us, because of our fallen condition, are naturally prone to disbelieve that sin, evil, defilement is coming from within our, in our hearts rather than from outside us. So we too instinctively rely on outward things, on appearance. This way of seeing ourselves is our default mode. Our first instinct, our first instinctive response to being confronted with sin is, yeah, but that's not who I really am. I'm basically a good person. We tend to think this way of our children, too. My son's really a good kid. He just made some bad choices, and he has a good heart. We instinctively te teach our children to see themselves this way. And the world around us is preaching a doctrine to us that says, you need to find the truth that's in your own heart and live that out. Then you'll be really free. The problem is that's the exact opposite of what Scripture says. We can even see this defect in perception at work in us as we read this passage. When we read accounts of Jesus' accusation, uh, uh, confrontations with, with Pharisees, often we tend to think, I'm on the side with Jesus. Tell him, Jesus. Get him, Jesus. Amen, Jesus. God, thank you that I am not as one of these Pharisees. The problem is that I am like the Pharisee. When God inspired Mark to write this account, he intended that Mike would see himself as the Pharisee, not as part of Team Jesus in this story. It is, re is it really true that we all share this universal flaw? And if it is, what should we do about it? Well, this section of Mark can help us see the truth of our real dilemma and help point us to the only solution there is for it. And that is, understanding the source of our uncleanness leads to repentance, faith in Christ, and true cleanness. As we look more closely at this passage, we'll see that all the people that Jesus interacts with lack this understanding that their own defilement is coming from within their heart. This natural blindness or lack of understanding as to the source of their uncleanness has some inevitable consequences for all of us. The first of which is failing to understand that our hearts generate sin leads us 
to focus on outward things and leads us away from God. The Pharisees and scribes are prime examples of this. Let's look at verses 1 through 5 again. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unclean, unwashed. For the Pharisees and the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? So we see that the scribes and Pharisees are clearly focused on external things, washing their hands, washing pots and, and vessels, and observing rules. This is what they do. They believe... At least internally, they believe that cleanness, purity before God, comes by things that they do, external things they do. So it's not surprising that they believe that Jesus' disciples are unclean because they aren't washing their hands properly. This perception has nothing to do with hygiene, by the way. The scribes were unaware of such things. No, their question reveals that their concern is about walking according to the tradition of the elders. Their question is really more of an accusation of Jesus than it is an actual question. Notice the emphasis. Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? Why aren't you teaching them properly, Jesus? What did the scribes mean when they talk about the tradition of the elders? These traditions were hundreds of oral laws and regulations that which were originally meant to clarify God's written law and to apply it to increasingly specific situations. These oral traditions had been passed down from teachers of the law, the elders, from one generation to the next. Theoretically, these additional regulations were meant to protect the people from transgressing the law, sort of a a fence around the law itself. But over time, the scribes and the Pharisees had become so obsessed with the oral law, the fence around the law, that they'd left the command of God and were holding only to the traditions of men. These visible, tangible observances that they considered essential to being clean. How would this happen? How had the traditions of men come to be more important to the scribes and Pharisees than God's written law itself? I had a car once that had a faulty engine light, but I didn't know it. I was driving it one day in the middle of July. It's 175 degrees outside. And I'm driving over the hill where the Papago Buttes are on McDowell. On the outside, everything seemed fine. What I didn't understand was that a hose had ruptured and all the coolant had come out of the radiator and the engine. By the time I got to the bottom of the hill, the engine block was humming. The car never recovered. I hadn't addressed this internal problem because I didn't understand there was an internal problem. My attention had only been on the outside. The Pharisees are sort of like my car. 
Jesus is their check engine light. Their corrupt hearts were leading them further and further away from God, but they didn't know it because their attention was on the appearance of things. Because they failed to see that they were corrupt inside and that the source of that defilement was their heart, they were not addressing their real problem at all. What happens to the human heart, any human heart, when the uncleanness that is producing goes unchecked? It becomes hardened. Their blindness to the reality of their situation was getting worse. They were laser focused on keeping things from the outside, getting in. But they didn't realize the evil was already inside them. And it was getting worse. This was coming from the core of them. That's what scripture means when it talks about the heart. The core of who I am. Because we all share this tendency not to understand and, and really believe that our problem is internal, we are also drawn to actions and activities by which we might justify ourselves. It's human nature. We want to do something to see ourselves as clean or to have others see us as clean or both. Jesus chooses to confront the scribes and the Pharisees with the truth of their uncleanness by using Scripture. Look at verses 6 through 8 again with me. And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. <clears throat> Jesus begins his, his response to the scribes and Pharisees by calling them hypocrites. This is a word... Greek word that originally referred to the masks that the Greek actors would wear in plays. So he's saying on the outside, the, the scribes and Pharisees really did look clean, but their outward appearance was just masking what was really going on inside. Jesus uses scripture to confront them. Why would Jesus do that? If there's anybody that ever had the right to express his own opinion without quoting scripture would be Jesus. But he doesn't do that. He uses God's word as his authority. If Jesus bases his cases on scripture, so should you and I. Is, is the advice and the counsel that you give others saturated in God's word? Can you defend the opinions you hold with what based on what God's word says in scripture. Brothers and sisters, for those of us who are in Christ, scripture must be our authority for everything. That means I must know God's word thoroughly so that I can faithfully apply it to real life, just like Jesus shows us to do here. Well, Jesus quotes Isaiah 29, 13 here where God, through Isaiah, had pronounced judgment on the Jewish leaders of his day. Those leaders in the past had also given just lip service to God when their hearts were far from him. Their worship had been in vain because they also failed to understand that their uncleanness was an internal heart problem, not an external problem that could be addressed through outward acts of cleansing. 
Isaiah says their works-based religion had led them far from God. Their focus on external deeds had not only shifted their focus away from God, but it actually moved them away from him relationally. The Pharisees and scribes who stood before Jesus had simply repeated the mistake of their ancestors. Jesus tells them bluntly in verse 8, you have already left the commandment of God and are holding just traditions of men. That's a biting indictment. Well, how might you and I be tempted to do this very thing today? Are there good works, good things that I do that have come to replace actually worshiping God? It's very easy, very easy for my motives to shift from genuinely wanting to glorify God to some external motivation. It happens very subtly because it's our nature to do that, all of us. Brothers and sisters in Christ, think about all the things you do, the things you do that presumably are for the Lord. Any one of them can easily turn into a merely outward performance or practice. I have sung songs during a worship service and not worshiped. I have served others with false motives. I have relied on my own strength to try and do good things. I need Jesus to give me again and again a clear understanding of my heart-generated uncleanness so that I might be led to repentance and faith in him and true cleanness. There's a second consequence of our shared problem. Failing to understand that our hearts generate sin leads us towards man-made systems that actually oppose God's word. Look at verse 9. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your own tradition. In verse 8, he had said that they left the commandment of God. Now he goes further and says, you reject the commandment of God. He also says they'd moved from holding to the traditions of the elders to establishing their own tradition. You see the progression. He describes the heart condition of these scribes and Pharisees, the ones that they don't see at all, as getting worse. Again, Jesus proves his point by using scripture. Look at verses 10 through 13. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me as korban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your traditions that you have handed down, and many such things you do. What's going on here? Well, to illustrate just how far the scribes and Pharisees have strayed from God's intent, he uses an example drawn from their current teachings about vows in relation to the fifth commandment. In verse 10, he quotes, that, that fifth commandment in Exodus 20, 12, and then he quotes Exodus 21, 17. God's word is clear. God's intent is clear. In stark contrast to God's word, Jesus charges, but you say, as he describes their interpretations. 
this example he cites is, uh, shows just how twisted the letter of the law from one part of Scripture can be used to nullify a clear commandment in another part of Scripture. The absurdity of their stance is meant to show them just how far off they are. Let me briefly try to explain the situation he's describing. Exodus 20 and 21 are clear. We're not talking about some obscure thing in, in the law. This is the fifth commandment. Children, even as adults, are to honor their parents. And those who don't are to be put to death. That's black and white. It's no question. But to evade the responsibility of taking care of parents as they age, people in Jesus' day would announce to their parents, to their parents, whatever help you would have ever received from me is dedicated to God. Corban. This strategy they're using would have been based on several passages in the Old Testament, particularly Leviticus 27, that commands that vows are to be taken seriously because they're to God. So they're taking that and twisting it to nullify something else. Here's the interesting part. Just because I might say to my parents, my property is Corban to you, banned from your use, didn't mean that I actually had to give it to God. It only prevented the parents from using it ever. I could still use it any way I wanted and be seen by everyone to be keeping a vow to God. How convenient. Even if you changed your mind and said, I decided I want to use what I have for my parents. The scribes would have intervened and said, no, no, you can't do that. You made a vow to God, and it supersedes your responsibility to your parents. This is what Jesus is describing. This was the official tradition that they had developed as a way to interpret those two passages of Scripture. It's jacked up. And Jesus says many such things they did. What is Jesus' point in telling the Pharisees and the scribes all this? We, people that we are, when we go on Facebook, and book or Facebook or Twitter and we pronounce judgment on someone, most of the time our intent is to say, I'm right, you're wrong. Not so with Jesus. Now, God's pronouncements of judgment are always, always calls to repentance. Because he is not willing that any pit should perish, not even Pharisees, not even Mike. Jesus was showing them how far away they were from them, where they thought they were so that they might understand and repent. Even knowing that they weren't going to, Jesus takes time with them to show them the truth of their hearts. It's amazing. Why is Mark telling us this? Well, the Pharisees are meant to be a cautionary tale for us. Look how twisted and deceived a seemingly godly person can become. This example should frighten us because we share the same basic flaw that led them to where they were. The human capacity for self-delusion should not be underestimated. There, but for the grace of God, go I. Well, that's all very good and well, you might say, but how do we know that Jesus wasn't just addressing 
these hypocritical scribes and Pharisees? Well, verse 14 and 15 show us that failing to understand our hearts generate sin is a universal human problem. Let's read verse 14. And he called the people again to him and said, Hear me, all of you, and understand. Jesus turns from addressing the scribes and Pharisees and calls all the people to him. Everybody. All of you, he says. He clearly doesn't need think that this is an issue just for scribes and Pharisees. Jesus believes that what he's about to say is of the utmost importance for everyone, which means us. There's a definite urgency, definite urgency to his words. Hear me, all of you, and understand. If you know the Psalms, these words might sound familiar, as they probably sounded familiar to the scribes and Pharisees. In Psalm 57, God speaks to his people and says, Hear me, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. And in Psalm 81.8, he says, Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you will but listen to me. Jesus adopts this same urgent approach that Yahweh has always used. Because they're the same. I don't know about you, but when Jesus says, hey, everybody, please listen to and understand this, I think we should pay attention to what comes next. So let's look at verse 15. Jesus says, there is nothing outside a person that going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. I'm going to read that again. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Why is this so important for us to hear and understand? There are two equally important truths here. The first is, nothing outside me can defile me. Jesus knows that I need to understand this truth because I naturally, instinctively believe the exact opposite of that. He knows that. If it's true that nothing outside me can defile me, then it's also true that nothing outside can make me clean. Nothing I do, no matter how hard I try, I can't do it. I cannot clean my heart by external things I do. The second thing we see here is that the things that come out of me do defile me. Why do I need to understand that? Because I need to understand what my real problem is. Until I understand that I'm a sinner, that I am defiled, someone with an inborn uncleanness that I can't erase or compensate for, until I get that, I will never repent and turn to him in faith so that, and he is my only hope. So Jesus is telling people, this is who you are, is a call to repentance. Jesus had been preaching the good news that saying the kingdom of God is here. You can be part of it if you will repent and put your trust in me. My first step towards re uh, repentance is an understanding that I am hopelessly, terminally unclean inside and that I need a savior to rescue me. 
I'm not a sinner because I sometimes sin. I sin because I am a sinner. It's who I am at the core of me. And you too. If you're here this morning and you are hearing what Jesus is saying to you and you understand, maybe for the first time, that you're a sinner, hopelessly unclean before God, there is very good news. Jesus came to rescue people just like you and me. If you will respond to his call to repent, to turn away from your sin and put all your trust in him, he will save you and he will change you from the inside out. Now, you might say, well, that's great for those who are not yet believers. I'm really happy about that. Those who are not yet in Christ, but these verses don't apply to me because I'm already a believer. Not so fast, my friend, because the next few verses show us that failing to understand that our hearts generate sin is a problem even for those who already follow Christ. Look at verses 17 and the, verse 17 and the first part of 18. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? As if he didn't know that already. For those of you who were here last week, you'll notice that this is the, from when we read chapter 6, you might notice that this is the second time in as many chapters Jesus, uh, Mark tells us that the disciples don't get it. In Mark 6, 51 and 52, after Jesus had 5, 000, fed 5,000 men from practically nothing and then walked on the Sea of Galilee right in front of the disciples, Mark tells us that they were utterly, utterly astonished for they did not understand about the loaves. Why? Because their hearts were hardened. Here in verse 18, Jesus tells us the disciples lacked understanding about the truth he just taught them about their hearts. How can this be? They're followers of Jesus. Because the disciples, just like the Pharisees, need to understand that they are still prone to disbelieving that, their, that sin is being generated in their hearts. Being a follower of Christ doesn't eliminate this blind spot we all share. Martin Luther said, all of a Christian's life is one of repentance. Brothers and sisters, that statement is true because although we're in Christ and we're forgiven and Jesus has paid the penalty for our sin and freed us from that, we still sin. If we fail to understand our daily need for repentance and grace, we find ourselves wandering away from that grace towards our own efforts. It's our natural thing to do. We're still in Christ, but our lives are not glorifying him. Well, where did the disciples turn for understanding? To Jesus. There's no other place to go for understanding, for them or for, for you. God has promised us, though, in James 1.5, that if we lack wisdom, we should ask him for it, and he'll give it. So Jesus patiently clarifies his teaching for the disciples in verses 18 and 19. He says, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters his, not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Notice that Jesus' explanation for them in private Pretty close to what he said in public. Whatever goes into you cannot defile you. I wonder if the disciples thought, 
there's got to be more to this than this. And maybe he'll clarify it for us like he's done before with other parables. But he simply restates his, his previous statement. Any doubts you might have about how important this thing that Jesus said should be dispelled by the fact that he says it over and over again. Well, maybe the disciples needed to hear this because they didn't yet have the Holy Spirit. Once they receive him, this teaching won't apply to them anymore. Hold on. Look at the last half of verse 19. Thus he declared all foods clean. Mark sort of sticks in this little statement in parentheses, uh, an application of Jesus' teaching in parentheses. Well, who is Mark writing this for? Not the scribes, not the Pharisees, not the crowd, not the disciples. Mark turns, if you will, to his audience, the church, specifically the church at Rome. These were believers indwelt by the Holy Spirit. This sentence and the verses that follow are teaching for them and by extension for us. We know from the book of Acts, from Paul's letter to the Romans, his letter to the church at Galatia, that, and from all, many other places in the New Testament, that the church continued to struggle with the temptation to add all sorts of outward acts of obedience to simple faith in Christ, as we do today. <laughs> Even though they were in Christ, understanding this truth about them, their nature of their own hearts, was still a struggle. And so, in verses 20 through 23, Mark shares Jesus' expanded teaching on this truth. <clears throat> he says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him, for from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, evil, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. And all these things come from within, and they defile a person. So previously, a Jesus had described our problem, the corruption generated at the core of us, in terms of its effect on us, we are all defiled because of it. Now, he tells us exactly what it is that's defiling us, that comes out of our hearts. Evil thoughts and evil things. He begins with evil thoughts. Before evil itself ever shows itself as outward sin, it starts as evil inside me. The sins listed, these evil things, are the external fruit of an internal evil. What's your reaction when you hear this list of evil things read? Were you checking off the boxes in your head? I've done that, haven't done that, never going to do that. I would humbly suggest to you that reading the list this way, the way we're naturally inclined to read it, is missing Jesus' point. Jesus is reminding me that this is who I naturally am and who I certainly would be without him. All of it. This is my resume. Not part of it, but all of it. And it's yours too. Those of us who are redeemed in Christ still sin because that indwelling sinful heart that old man is still at war with our new nature. And it's, it's going to be there until I go to be with Jesus. 
Let's say I become angry with my wife, Teresa, hypothetically. <laughs> it's a momentary thing. I excuse it away. I was just tired, or, or there was, I had a good reason, or I was thinking about something else, blah, 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 blah. No need to repent. Jesus understands. We'll let this one slide. Then another sin with no repentance, and another, and another. What happens? My heart hardens. The conviction of sin cools. And I move further from him. This is how it happens. Really simple. Because we share this blind spot that I today need repentance. The understanding of the true nature of our hearts is meant to call us back to repentance, which we need every day. Here, all of you understand. Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Parents, this is also true of your, our children. I know it's hard. I know it is to think of your child as someone who's generating evil in their heart. It's hard for me, too. When my son does something good, even when he just smiles at me, I want desperately so much to believe he's good on the inside. But Jesus tells me that's not true. The most loving thing we can do as parents is help our children see the reality of the situation of their hearts. It's their biggest problem. The world out there is not your child's biggest problem. Their heart is their biggest problem. Just like me, my son's biggest problem is his sin-generating heart. That's what's still inside all of us. It's kind of a bleak picture, but it's not the end of the story. Praise God, there is a way to be clean. A long time ago, a Christian named Robert Lowry wrote a song describing not just his saving experience with Jesus, but his ongoing need for the grace of Jesus in his life every day. He wrote this. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing can for sin atone. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing of good that I have done. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The Gospel of Mark is headed there. Jesus, as he spoke these words today that we read about to these sinful people about their greatest need, was headed to the cross. He was going to soon die for his, this people, taking their place so that they, so that we might be clean by faith in him. Maybe you've been reminded this morning of some unrepentant sin in your life. Or maybe you've never come to a repentance that led to faith in Christ in the first place. Either way, God, through his word, is reminding us this morning of our real problem and our need for repentance. How can I be sure that all of us in this room need repentance and the grace of Jesus to work in us? Because you're all still breathing. Jesus tells us right here, 
that our hearts are little generators of evil. You can repent right now, right where you are. Jesus gives us an understanding of our sinful hearts, and then he grants us the repentance we need so that we can put our faith and trust in him so that he can cleanse our hearts. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your words of warning to us this morning through Mark. Lord, we come now confessing that we all struggle to remember and to understand that we're not good people who sometimes sin. We are sinners. We're either sinners saved already by your grace or sinners still in need of your saving grace. Lord, we cast ourselves at the foot of your cross and ask for your mercy. Thank you for bringing us an understanding that leads to repentance and faith in you alone. Lord, as we prepare ourselves now to remember your atoning work for us on the cross by sharing in communion together, would you bring sin to our minds so that we might confess and repent of that sin now? And Lord, bring fresh awareness to us of just how great a sacrifice you've made for us. You shed your precious blood to give me life when I deserve death, to make me clean. May gratitude for so great a salvation as this well up in us to joy. We ask all this in your name. Amen.